0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a federal judge in the U.S. has decided to strike down a national mask mandate on airlines, decisions being met with many concerns from experts. Is it really time to end that order, or should we remain cautious? Canada will be sending heavy artillery to Ukraine to help it fight the Russian invasion, Is Canada's reply enough, and what took us so long? And Tim Hudak, the CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association, joins us to discuss Ontario allowing buyers to see all bids on real estate. It's the government's attempt to stop the bidding wars that we're seeing in the real estate market these days. All coming up in the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with today, uh, big news yesterday, of course, was that uh, a judge in Florida, uh, Donald Trump appointed judge, by the way, has uh, shot down the uh, mandate of masks on airplanes and uh, trains, etc., etc., in the United States, uh, much to the chagrin, I guess, of the uh, the administration in Washington right now. In Canada, well, they're not gonna follow the lead as we were finding out uh, yesterday, late yesterday. Infectious disease expert, Dr. Isaac Bogosh has weighed in on this too, uh, as whether or not he thinks it's safe to be on a plane and not be masked. Here's what the doctor had to say.
1: You're in the middle of a COVID wave you're in an indoor space, and it's not just the airplane. It's the airport. It's getting on the plane. It's getting off the plane. It's getting your bags. It's checking in. All these places where people congregate together in an indoor environment. You can lower your risk of getting COVID, and you can create a safer indoor environment for all by putting on a mask. It's a no-brainer during a pandemic of a respiratory viral infection to keep a mask on during those settings. Like it just, It just makes sense. So even though people might not be legally obliged to do it, in the midst of a big surge of COVID, it just seems like the common-sense approach.
0: Dr. Isaac Bogosh, uh, with his uh, concerns about uh, the ruling yesterday, and this is only in the United States, by the way. Uh, the Canadian government has already weighed in on this. Uh, Transport Minister Omar al has already suggested that, uh, no, they're not going to follow the U.S. lead, uh, that they're going to follow the science, I think is the phrase that he used yesterday. So where are we on this? And uh, is, is the U.S. right here? Is this judge right? Or are we better to be cautious and uh, follow the advice of people like Dr. Bogash. Let's uh, bring Thomas Tenkate into the conversation. Uh, He's a professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Uh, Thomas, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today.
2: Uh, Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having
0: me. Right off the top, let's backtrack just a bit to about 24 hours or so ago. Were you surprised by this ruling?
2: Well, in in a lot of ways, I, I wasn't surprised. Uh, but I think you know what what we also have to sort of remember is that, and we have to differentiate, I think, between sort of the legal aspects and the scientific aspects. And I think you know my understanding is that you know that decision was based on whether or not the CDC and the US had the appropriate authority to you know create and and enforce a mask mandate in in you know tra- travel settings. And so so that's quite different to whether or not having you know having a mask mandate is scientifically appropriate so so i think we have to differentiate between those two things and and definitely in the us uh you know there's there's a lot of pressure in the, within the system to to really uh roll back a lot of the uh requirements so so i wasn't i wasn't surprised with that
0: and and i know we i don't want to get too deeply into the political uh, bushes here about this but uh there is a, a, a marked difference between the Bill of Rights, I guess, you know, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that we have in this country, as opposed to in the United States. And as, as a number of lawyers have explained to me, and I'm, I'm sure you're well aware of this too, Thomas, uh, individual rights seem to trump the greater good in the United States. You know, they have, they have those rights. But in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in this country, uh, the common good seems to trump individual rights. Uh, so there's a, there's a difference in, 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 I guess, in the way they view uh, rights and freedoms, individual rights and freedoms, as opposed to the common good. I, I, I'm assuming that weighed in on this as well.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I think yeah, that that's the you know definitely when people say in the states uh, sort of talk about rights, they're really referring to individual rights. Whereas I think you know say in Canada and, and in other countries, when we talk about rights, we also talk about responsibilities. And you know personally, I became a Canadian citizen last week, and through congratulations. that, congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, we uh, had to had to go through the you know learn about you know you know there are rights as as a citizen but then there's also responsibilities and i think uh you know there's in some ways that there's my sense is there's more of a balance in that in in Calen, in Canada you know a discussion about rights and responsibilities that really there are you know the the two sides of the same coin whereas in the states there seems to be more of a uh, the pendulum seems to be more swinging to individual rights without sort of what's what's the responsibilities that you have if when you also have those rights. So so yeah, that's just a you know I'm not a lawyer, but yeah, that's just a sort of observation as a as a new Canadian.
0: Yeah, it's it's one of those things that I've heard so many different times as, as, again, as some of the lawyers we've had on this program explained to me, and I'm sure this wasn't on your test, Thomas, but, you know, your right to swing at me It stopped at my nose. You, mean you you can do it and think you want to do what you want, but as soon as you you infringe on my rights and, and my public health, uh, we got a problem, and, and I don't know that that's necessarily the case in the mm-hmm. States. But anyway, uh, enough about the ideology here. There's another aspect of this, too, and that's the public health issue here florida has never really uh, been a, a state that's been compliant with a lot of the stuff that the cdc has put forth ever since the beginning of this pandemic governor DeSantis down there uh was one of the first ones to say you know no no mandate no uh, no social distancing you know beaches were full and all this sort of stuff so they've they've not been a a cooperator for the for the beginning so I, i'm not surprised that it came from a, a a florida judge to do this but what about the public health aspects of this i mean as mm. as we've talked about in the past uh we're not out of the woods yet when it comes to this pandemic as a matter of fact the fact that we are even talking about this means the pandemic is still here
2: yeah yeah well well definitely and you know and as the comments you know on the pre-recorded comments that you've played you know uh, I totally agree with with what those comments uh were and you know and when I look at you know all the various metrics that we have for what indicates what level of infection we have in the community pretty much all those metrics are, are increasing and, and so that's you know hospitalizations uh with covid cases in ICUs the percent positivity rate for people who are getting PCR tests and and the level of virus in, in wastewater so so all of those you know all of those metrics uh, are, are sort of on the rise um, and you know given that I think uh you know we, we need to sort of say well what what are the what are the appropriate measures that we need to Keep in place to try and keep keep things under control as best as possible. And, and I think ma- you know, masks are are a, uh, you know th- I think they've been a controversial thing throughout the uh, throughout the pandemic. Uh, and I think in a lot of ways, public health authorities got off on a sort of a misstep initially with with uh, you know do you need masks? Don't you need masks? How effective are they? All those sorts of discussions. And and so in some ways, I think. There was, uh, you know, right from the start, there was, uh, in some ways, a little bit more mistrust about the effectiveness of masks than than what what should have been. And so, whereas, like from my perspective, masks are effective, but but there but there are a lot of variables that influence how effective they can be. And so, and and you know, that includes the the design of the mask, what what material the mask is made of, you know, how tightly fitting they are. You know, and uh, how regularly someone replaces them, and so so all of those factors really influence how effective your mask is going to be. But if but if someone you who know, has a an N95 or a KN95 mask that's that's well fitted, then you know they're they're going to be very well protected.
0: I, and I, th- I think that's the consensus right now. And I, I agree with your point initially, as, as we can probably recall, seems so long ago, that this whole thing started. Uh, initially, they were saying we didn't need masks. But I mean, we didn't know a whole lot about this, uh, this coronavirus at that time, did we?
2: No. And, and it, you know, it, that, that sort of, if you recall, it gets down to the debate about whether or not it was a droplet or whether it was airborne mm-hmm. and what does droplet mean versus airborne. And it really gets down to, you know, the size of the size of the particles that the uh, the virus is traveling on. And, and whereas, you know, the reality is that, uh, you know, even from whether whether or not you have that debate or not, you know, having some sort of mask is is better than not having a mask at all. And and I think we, we probably should have been having that message out early on to say, please wear something because that's better than nothing. And while we figure this out, we'll be able to work out which is the best type of mask to wear.
0: And And isn't that the debate anyway? You know, I mean... <laughs> Hockey players wear helmets, and th- 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 that doesn't mean that you, you're not going to get a concussion if you fall and hit your head. But it's probably it, it, it mitigates the, the the possibility of that happening, and it's it's protection. Mm-hmm. And I, I I agree. I mean, I've I've had some very knowledgeable doctors on this show over the last couple of years, and, and people who I respect immensely. But, and some of them say, yeah, masks don't really work. Uh, but I, I agree with your point there. I mean, some protection is better than absolutely no protection at all. It may it's not going to make us bulletproof. But if, it's, if it prevents somebody from spreading it and prevents you from getting it, uh, that's a good thing. And I agree. It depends on the kind of mask you have and, and, and how you wear it. Uh, and I think we've been a pretty slack on that in the, in the last little while. But it, I, I just find it kind of mind-boggling that all of a sudden they're saying, "Okay, you don't need these anymore," because it's mm. still out there and it's still spreading.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, and I think you know, you know, personally, you know, I'm, I'm you know, I'm still wearing masks, and, and uh, yeah, uh, in pretty much any sort of you know what they call congregant setting and that, mm-hmm. that's anywhere where there's lots of people and, and particularly indoor settings and you know i'm sticking with my uh you know n95 or kn 95 masks and uh you know and, and say if you know I've, I've actually been on a plane a couple of times recently and say for that I've, I've also uh uh because i'm in a you know very enclosed space for for a long period of time i've also uh you know worn some uh wraparound uh glasses just to make sure that there wasn't any potential thing uh sort of particles getting getting on into my eyes uh you know and using hand sanitizer and and you know and replacing the mask pretty frequently so so for me that's that's a sort of some minimum things that are not too impactful but but can have an impact uh on on whether or not i get infected or not so so there's some of the things that I, i you know i encourage people to do
0: in other words, you're following the same protocol that, that we've been told to follow all along, and and I'm I, I can't get inside the, the the head of the judge that made this ruling. Uh, we, by the way, we did find out late yesterday. By the way, the Biden administration is not even going to appeal this, uh, but that may have more to do with politics than than you know medical evidence as as well because they're kind of getting beaten up in the popularity polls down there these days. But it, it's you know when when the people who we refer to and that we rely on for expertise in this. Uh, the, you know, Center for Disease Control down there, or Health Canada up here. Uh, when they say, by the way, the pandemic is over now, the numbers are so low that, you know, we can just consider this to be something that's out there, but it's not going to have uh, the, the level of danger that it did before. Then I think, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of us feel much comfortable with it. But I, I notice the same thing that you do uh, when I'm out and about, you know, whether going to the pharmacy, the grocery store or whatever, most people are still wearing masks. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's still the oddity to say, oh, God, that person's not wearing a mask right now. Because I think we're still being very cautious about this. Because I think a lot of us understand the severity of what we're still dealing with.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and you know, I think it's 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 also sort of geographically uh, sort of specific too. Like, say, I was I was out in uh, Halifax uh, last week for a conference, and a lot of people there weren't wearing masks. But but we know that the uh, you know the you know the the uh, Nova Scotia and, and the provinces over there have had a lot less infection within the community, whereas you know when you look at uh, what's happening throughout ontario you know we we still have to be very very cautious and uh you know i'd, I'd still sort of encourage people even though that even if they don't uh, aren't required to wear masks in in uh, a range of settings you know i would say you know as a, as a rule uh, uh you know whenever you're indoors in in some indoors you know wear wear your mask when when it's not in your own home and and uh and when you get into any sort of crowded settings uh sort of keep you know have your mask so whereas if you're outdoors just you know sort of walking along the along the street or you know on, uh, on the boardwalk or something you know sort of yeah sure don't don't wear a mask in that situation but uh you know in essence just keep a mask handy and uh you know when when you feel a bit of crowding and uh, and particularly when you're going into indoor situations uh you know pop the mask on and uh, i think you know at a minimum that's going to that's a yeah, you know, that's going to give you a level of protection that uh, I think you know is is an easy thing to do, and uh, will will uh, I think you know will help you out in 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 the long run.
0: Oh, especially when it comes to things like airline travel, which seem to be, the you know, the thrust of, of the, the decision that was announced yesterday. Uh, I mean, because we've all been told, you're absolutely right, if we're going to be in indoor spaces in congregate settings, uh, it's good advice. Uh, so basically what this judge is saying is, look, you can go ahead and get into a great big metal tube with 100 other people and breathe the same air for two or three hours, but you don't need a mask because there's nothing going to spread there. That, that seems incongruous.
2: Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, you know, you know, what I, what I was sort of taking from that was, I, I, I'm not sure if they're making a comment on the science or whether or not they're making more of a comment on the on the legality of should should that that uh, you know should should the CDC does it have the authority to do that and if and if if under this ruling that they're saying they don't, then you have to say well their system's broken that that the you know the leading uh, you know infection infection control agency doesn't have the ability to uh, put in place control measures that that's uh that's a bit of a worrying sign
0: well and if not them then who does have that authority and, and I don't, yeah. I, it's kind of a rhetorical question but i mean you know where, where does the responsibility lie
2: yeah no i i agree and and i think you know uh my sense is you know and like we talked about earlier you know the with with canada there's there's i think those sort of lines of uh authority and who, who, who know, you know, who can do what, uh, are pretty clear and, um, you know, they've, they've, uh, sort of been sort of outworked through this, this process. And, and, uh, and, and I think, uh, at this stage, the, you know, both at the federal level and, uh, provincial and particularly Ontario, that they're, they're, you know, they're very, uh, clear about, you know, who, who can do what and, you know, and, and I, you know, and again, I think with, uh, you know, if you talk, uh, you know, communities and, and individual communities you know that you you can also get down to the public health units and and the the medical officers of health having additional you know they can pl- put in place additional requirements if they want to as well so so we have a have a i think i have a good system in canada for that but uh it, you know again you know a lot of these things uh have have various you know political influence on them as well
0: Absolutely, and I think we've all known that from the beginning. I just I, I just as as a Canadian citizen, I just feel a lot more comfortable that we're, if you're going to er err on the side of caution uh, and I think it's you know paid off at least to to a certain extent here. Uh, Thomas, mm-hmm. always a pleasure. thank you so much for the time today. Stay well and uh, we'll talk again soon, I hope.
2: Yeah, great. thanks very much, Bill. have a great day.
0: take care. Thomas Tenke, Professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. <laughs>
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: We talked yesterday about what was happening in Ukraine, and uh, it seems to be a renewed uh, offensive by uh, Russian troops, of course, and especially towards some of the cities. And uh, there was another plea over the uh, weekend uh, from uh, President Zelensky of uh, Ukraine uh, for more military aid uh, from NATO and mentioned specifically uh, the United States and Canada, for that matter. And, and I know that this government has been under a great deal of criticism uh, for not stepping up to the way many people thought they should have uh, but we found out late yesterday that canada will be sending heavy artillery to ukraine to help fight the russian invasion uh, prime minister trudeau says he's been in close contact with president zelensky of ukraine uh for the last several weeks and now it's responding to ukraine's needs based on this particular phase of the war it's in right now it's it's a pretty dire circumstance to have that and and, and obviously canada is responding here's what the prime minister had to say
1: their most recent request uh, from Canada is to help them with heavy artillery, because that's what uh, the phase of the war is in right now, uh, and Canada uh, will be uh, sending heavy artillery to Ukraine, uh, with more details to come in the coming days. So
0: that's uh, the Canadian position right now, and and obviously the the situation in Ukraine is essentially saying, look, at that, we needed this stuff yesterday. Uh, and, and that's been the plea, of course, from President Zelensky from the, the beginning, we now of course the, the now famous quota but you know i don't need a ride i need weapons i need machinery i need bullets i need ammunition and uh you put this in context i guess of the the story we got yesterday uh from uh, i asked one ukraine uh, division of, of uh, the defending army there actually had to surrender to russian soldiers we're told because they simply ran out of ammunition and uh, i don't think president Zelensky wants to see that situation rising once again so canada is stepping up but is it enough Uh, And is it going to deter the the Russian invasion and and their stated goal, obviously, uh, to, well, crash and burn, I guess, just about everything they can in Ukraine. Uh, Joining us to talk about this is uh, Aura Brown, who is a professor of international relations and, of course, a senior member at the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Professor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about what uh, President Zelensky is asking for. Things things have changed markedly. We know that uh, the focus now by the Russian forces seems to be on uh, cities, Mariupol, of course, and, and, and a couple of others that seem to be under constant attack these days. Is Canada's reply, as, uh, in, in, as the Prime Minister just stated, of sending heavy artillery right now, is, is that answering the call? Is that what the Ukraine needs right now?
3: They need that. They need anti-aircraft. They need electronic Uh, equipment uh, they have been pleading uh, with western countries since before the war started but especially after russia launched its all-out attack on ukraine on february 24th so this is not a new request and i think it is a very positive development that canada has committed now to providing some of this heavy equipment because the russian forces are using a great deal of artillery they are leveling cities they are using mass They are not restrained by any notions of international law or uh, international morality, for that matter. But the question is, why have we waited this long? Why has the West waited this long to provide some of this heavy equipment uh, to Ukraine?
0: And, And I think that's the concern a lot of us share uh you know i'm I'm glad to hear our, our prime minister reacting in the fashion that he has but is is this too little too late and why are we taking baby steps in, in trying to help ukraine in in their hour of need
3: this has been one of the big problems that mr biden has proclaimed many times that the west is united uh, first of all that statement is an exaggeration because the west is not exactly united if you look at germany's re- reluctance to introduce uh, certain sanctions, uh, the ones that deal with uh, especially natural gas, that we can see that there is a significant amount of disunity. But as desirable as unity is within the Western alliance, leadership is very important. And unfortunately, the leadership of uh, President Biden, as well-intentioned as he may be, has been very timid. It has been very reactive. It has been very concerned about what would happen if uh, mr putin feels provoked but of course mr putin has felt provoked all along the very existence of nato for mr putin is a provocation never mind the enlargement of nato
0: do we take the threats that putin has made though at, at face value that uh, that that you know the concern was of course if nato actually you know steps foot inside ukraine uh, or Putin is, uh, with a, with, at a whim, I guess, could say, okay, I'm going to turn this into a nuclear uh, battle. Uh, th- that's always a concern, and it's a fear, and I think it's a legitimate fear. Uh, but is he bluffing, and is it worth you know, trying to call his bluff in a situation like this?
3: Nuclear threats are always something that we have to take seriously. And the fact is that because we have historically taken this seriously, That is why we also have nuclear weapons, to create nuclear deterrence, to basically say to the other side that it's not going to be wise for anyone to use nuclear weapons, that a nuclear war cannot be won. Everybody loses in an all-out nuclear war. And we have to understand that uh, Vladimir Putin is not some fanatical theocrat. He's not looking for some reward in an afterlife. He enjoys the wealth required through corrupt means the people who surround him are oligarchs or security people have made a huge amount of money so he's not suicidal uh he may make these threats but he understands that there is western deterrence and that is what we've done during the cold war this is not to say that we should not be cautious but there's a difference between cautious and being timid there is a difference between respecting russia as a country and being deferential, and basically just being reactive and letting Russia commit the kind of mass butchery that they have done in many cities in uh, Ukraine. And we now have witnessed the aftermath. And I think very rightly, President Biden called this genocide. And very correctly, he has identified uh, Mr. Putin as a war criminal. Well, when you use these kind of terms, They have to have some meaning. They have to be reflected in terms of operation. And when we look at what Ukraine is doing, helping Ukraine ought not to be viewed as an act of altruism, but it is a way of defending the West because what we have seen with Vladimir Putin is that with every aggression that ends what in his eyes is a success, his appetite just grows. And we in Canada have a problem in the far north we are an arctic nation vladimir putin has militarized the arctic he has engaged in the kind of exploration that is a vast ecological threat and so consequently what happens in ukraine is not detached from what may happen at some point in the arctic and then boris johnson got it right that vladimir putin is an ever-present danger and so he has to be defeated Uh, Not just because Ukraine deserves to be independent and deserves help, but we are doing this out of our own enlightened interests.
0: Uh, as you say, because we we could be next on the list, and, and not only Russia, but of course we even know now that China has a, an interest in, in the Arctic because of the, the minerals and the, uh, the raw materials that are available up there. But you've seen some of the narratives, though, though Professor, that, that I find troubling. I wanted to get your opinion on that. There were some people now, both politicians and, and some in the media, uh, suggesting that you know just by what's happened over the last six or eight weeks that putin has lost it that's the phrase i'm hearing a lot you know that he has gone crazy and he's he's making irrational decisions but i i think you've probably hit the the nail on the head right now uh he's doing what he's doing because every time he does anything like right no There's no reaction. There's no pushback on it. I mean, you know, Crimea, well, Ukraine back in 2015, Crimea and others, uh, you know, there's a slap on the wrist with sanctions. And I'm not trying to minimize the the impact that's having on the Russian people, but it's not hurting Putin uh, in any way, shape, or form. And he figures, I'm going to keep pushing until somebody pushes back. And we haven't really done that yet, have we?
3: Sanctions have not so far deterred him. And perhaps in the long term, they may have a much greater effect But so far, we can see in the action that he's taking in the Donbass that he's willing to take the pain. This is not a democracy. And external adventures have been a means for Vladimir Putin to divert attention from domestic failures. And in many ways, Russia has failed as a state. Uh, I've said this, I think, on this program and elsewhere, that this is a vast country with unparalleled natural resources, extraordinary human talent, And yet, out of the oligarchs, it is a wretchedly poor country with a unidimensional economy that can't compete internationally, that uh, is uh, increasingly repressive domestically. And yet, foreign adventures increase Vladimir Putin's popularity. So look at the opinion polls, whether it was in Georgia uh, in 2008, in uh, the case of Ukraine, uh, where they uh, took over and annexed Crimea in 2014 syria in 2015 where they engaged in horrific war crimes or now every time vladimir putin's popularity has soared so i think there is a kind of inner logic that he's using and we should not judge his actions necessarily by our logic from the perspective of the kremlin it makes sense but he also understands that losing would have profound uh, uh effects and this is why he desperately tried to find some kind of win vladimir putin and as the economist magazine said the west needs to make sure that ukraine wins in this instance
0: how do you deal with an individual like like a putin and, and yeah you're absolutely right professor you've told us before in this program uh, Russia is not uh, an economic power, not the way they think they are anyway. They are a military power and a military concern because of their nuclear capabilities, of course. And that's something that he's holding over the Biden administration and, or any administration. He held it over the Obama administration uh, when he made those incursions, as you mentioned, a few years ago as well. Uh, do, you, do you fight might with might? Or uh, It doesn't look like there's a whole lot of uh, wiggle room here for a diplomatic solution to this.
3: Diplomacy is always preferable to war because war is unpredictable but the hard reality is that we have seen a return of geopolitics which means that you cannot rely on soft power alone that dialogue has to be a means to an end diplomacy has to be a means to an end not what some old diplomats think that it is an end in itself and hard power is very important and what we have seen is that the west has neglected its hard power you I mean, look at germany right now this is the largest economy it's significantly larger than the russian economy uh and it's a very successful economy a successful democracy but they allow their military to be so run down that now even if they want to send over uh, significant uh, amounts of equipment they don't have it uh one-third of the german air force can't really fly uh, and and this is something that should not have happened, that we have to understand that as much as we would prefer to spend money on schools and hospitals, and certainly that would be my preference, we cannot neglect uh, our ability to defend ourselves, to defend our values. And I think collectively this is what the West, especially in Europe, has done. And look at Canada as well, that uh, now we want to send more equipment over but some of it we'll have to buy elsewhere. We just don't have
0: it. Is it time for us to do a reevaluation? Because I I, I concur totally with what you're saying. There has been a move, uh, even in America, uh, to, to reduce military spending over the last couple of decades. Really, uh, they don't necessarily. I got the sense anyway. They don't necessarily want to be the, the world's police force anymore, uh, as they have been in the past in places like Vietnam and so many other places. But is it time to rethink that? And, and I'm not suggesting a huge military buildup here, but, you know, when the other side is playing that game and, and, and threatening to use that, that military force, uh, what choice does NATO have at this stage?
3: This is what we have to understand, the unfortunate reality, the inconvenient reality, that it is not that we are just playing, you know, single-dimensional chess. We are dealing in an interactive international system vladimir putin had armed massively fortunately for the west and and for ukraine a lot of uh, the corruption in russia permeated the military as well this is why we have seen that the russia are not 10 feet tall but they are nonetheless dangerous they have a huge amount of uh, firepower china is spending an enormous amount on the military they're developing a gigantic navy they are now increasing their nuclear arsenal at a very rapid really alarming pace and so we cannot ignore those realities. And uh, consequently, we have to look at some of these countries as either enemies, or if they're not enemies, uh, they are uh, opponents, and uh, they have the, their, their own interests. You mentioned China's interest in the Arctic. Well, as uh, the sea ice and the Arctic ice are melting, The new navigational possibilities. China wants to be able to navigate through the northern uh, sea route, so they're investing in a military capability. Russia has heavy icebreakers. We see China threatening uh, Taiwan, which is a country with 23 million people, a vibrant democracy, a successful economy. What do we do in that kind of situation? Um, Russia's actions have so worried neutral states such as Finland, And Sweden, that there is a likelihood, not a certainty, but a likelihood that they will try to join NATO out of fear of Russia. Vladimir Putin has threatened these countries as well. What happens in that kind of situation? Do we then try to help these countries uh, if they are threatened directly by Russia? And if we want to help, we need to have capabilities on the ground. Unless we have those capabilities and combine that with economic strength, With uh, 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 diplomacy that is focused, that uh, works towards a peaceful end, we are not going to be successful. Power is a composite. It is all of those elements of soft power, but also the reality of hard power.
0: We seem to have had a different mindset, haven't we, Professor? Over the last number of years, I mean, you know, the the, the Russians used to be the bad guys in the Khrushchev and Brezhnev days, and and, and others. And, but there's been a softening of that attitude, you know, since uh, I, I guess Gorbachev and Reagan. You know, the Glasnost, everything. We're not shooting at each other, so I guess we're okay now. And he was allowed into the G7, the G20, still a member of the G20. Uh, and there's a sense of complacency that set in, wasn't there?
3: This is what is ironic, because what you say is quite correct, that there was more than complacency. There was what I call deference. And there was this kind of belief that if you create a web of interdependence, and this was basically the German logic that they don't need to spend a great deal on the military. They can allow the military to be run down. During the Cold War, they were spending like 3% on the military. Then they got up to one2 1.3% of GDP. But they could uh, allow themselves, the Germans, to become highly dependent on Russian energy under the belief that, well, uh, the Russians are dependent on getting the money from that and therefore they would not use energy as a weapon. Well, they are. And that was foreseeable. And many of us had predicted that, that this was unwise. When sanctions were leveled at Russia after the illegal annexation of uh, Crimea, Western oil companies, such as British Petroleum and To Total of France, rushed in to say, don't worry, it's business as usual. The message to Mr. Putin was that force works
0: Exactly. Uh, Very tenuous situation, and we'll see just how uh, uh, the Putin regime responds to the latest uh, uh, plan from Canada here anyway. uh, Professor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it.
3: Thank you for having me on.
0: Take care. Professor Oral Brown, uh, of course, International Relations and senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University
1: of Toronto. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: I want to talk about real estate. And uh, yeah, we're all talking about real estate. It's, uh, if I can paraphrase Mark Twain, everybody's talking about real estate and nobody's doing much about it. Spiraling costs, uh, market's gone crazy, uh, which is good news, I guess, if you're selling. Uh, not so good if you're trying to buy a house these days, and that's problematic. The federal government addressed this in their, their budget presentation a, few, a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, And it's, uh, well, their idea of what they want to see happen here uh, is not something that an awful lot of folks are in agreement with, including a couple of premiers and and certainly uh, some folks in the real estate business and the industry. The the point that the federal government was trying to make here uh, was to end what they call blind bidding. And uh, it's it's something that's, uh, well, it's a thing now in real estate, especially with real estate sales uh and like everything else there's good and bad in this uh try to get some uh, some order to this and some context uh, we're pleased to welcome back to the program tim hudak tim of course is the ceo of uh the ontario real estate association and uh somebody who knows a little bit about real estate and uh and about the business side of things tim great to have you back in the program hope you and the family are doing well these days
1: yeah thank you bill we had a, a nice easter back home in niagara so that was uh, great and I appreciate you having me back on the show
0: well, it's good to have you here because this is an important issue. And, you know, we've all talked about what's going on with real estate right now. And uh, I, I was kind of surprised, frankly, to hear the federal government jumping into this because, I mean, basically, uh, the sale of, of properties and real estate is, is really kind of a municipal, uh, provincial thing. Uh, we, we're kind of surprised that the federal government tried to weigh in on this?
1: Well, well yes and no. I mean, with, with 21 years in, in politics before coming on board as CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association, I, I certainly know that. You know, politicians will often try to take the easy route and attack the symptoms of a problem as opposed to the underlying problem. Look, the the big issue we need to address, uh, Bill, you've talked about it a lot, is there's simply not enough affordable housing supply in the marketplace, particularly, you know, for starter homes, a a new family starting out, move up homes when when the kids come along. And then quality rentals, and whether you're in Hamilton, London, or Toronto, that is a major issue across the province. We need to focus like a laser on more affordable choices and more supply. Uh, and governments,
0: I, I, I'm sure they're aware of that, Tim. But they, every time we hear about these plans, they they don't seem to be addressing that key element here of supply. Uh, you know, we know the demand is already there, and and you know they say, and we heard that again from the federal government. we want to do something about the price of housing and make it more affordable. It's supply and demand, really, what it comes down to I mean, if you don't don't have that supply, of course the prices are going to go up. you know if I want to buy a car and you want to buy a car and there's only one car out there, we're gonna bid for it. I mean, you know there's going to be a competition that's that's the reality, isn't it?
1: yeah, that's economics funny. you you'd get a master or a or a western right that uh, we have a significant increase in demand, you know and for good reasons, right? The economy is doing better, that's great. The millennials are now you know getting promotions or having families or putting. Pressure on the system. That's the, the biggest generation in Canada's history now, you know, entering the housing market. That's a good thing. The, the bank of mom and dad, you know, the parents have saved up significant uh, sums over time. They love their sons and daughters dearly, but, you know, would <laughs> like to see them get out of the house and get a place of their own. It's good they have that, that wealth that they can share with that. And Canada, particularly in Ontario, remains a, a beacon for people from around the world to live or across Canada. So that's what's driving demand along with low mortgage rates. Even though ticked up a bit. but you know Bill, it's, it's sad and shocking that throughout most of the you know 2010s and, and uh, into the 2020s, we were building fewer homes than we did in the 1970s. So with all that demand out there, we ground housing starts to a halt through you know overregulation and dimbyism. And now who's paying the price? Well, it's the next generation that can't find a, a home to live in, Despite the fact they've done everything right, followed the rules, got a good job, stayed up every dollar they have, they still can't get in the market.
0: Which is why organizations like yours are so important. And, and as you mentioned, Tim, I mean, you, you spent uh, over 20 years in public life, so you, you know what of we speak. And some of the roadblocks, and you and I have talked about this number of times on the program, are, are at that level, at the municipal level or in the, some cases in the provincial level. Uh, and, and every time the government tries to weigh in on this, you're, you're absolutely right. They address the symptoms you know, you've got the Bank of Canada saying, OK, we're going to raise interest rates and that's going to slow the market down. No, it's, it's I don't know that it's going to help at all, but it, it is going to make it less affordable for an awful lot of people. Uh, and if I'm selling a house, uh, this whole idea that, that they, the government seems to be trying to get a hold of here, a uh, blind bidding, uh, if I'm selling, I'm, I'm welcoming a process
1: like that. I want to get the most money for my house. That's common sense, isn't it? <laughs> it's a decision many people take, but let me um, just take it back one step here, Bill, and there was a package of announcements the province made yesterday, and I think your listeners going to like a, a lot about it. And then we can talk about the uh, the offer process. Yeah. You know, one thing that you know, the realtors have pushed for um, through our organization, you know, the Ontario Real Estate Association, is to raise the bar when it comes to professional standards. We want to make sure that realtor at your side in the biggest purchase of your life is going to be trusted with a good degree of education and a disciplinary system to go after them if they break the rules. So a big part of that yesterday was a a new code of ethics, which will make us North American uh, leaders when it comes to professional standards. Uh, More transparency in the real estate uh, exchange in terms of giving consumers information about what it means to work with a realtor. And one we really push for and happy to see, tougher discipline. You know, if we see a member out there, Bill, who plays fast and loose, breaks the rules, takes advantage of somebody when it comes to buying or selling a home, we don't want them in the profession. So a greater ability to kick out those who break the rules and raise the bar across the board. So that was a big part of it, uh, along with a new option to come to selling your home.
0: Well, and, and, we, and we need to talk about that and, and the options. Uh, like you say, it, it's probably the biggest business deal most of us are ever going to make, uh, whether you're buying or selling in a situation like this. And, and I was somewhat surprised uh, when the federal government decided to, to get into this whole idea of uh, blind bidding. And and. Basically, maybe we should explain that to the listeners who may not be fully aware of this. Uh, because of the competition that we just talked about and because we don't have enough supply, oftentimes if a house goes up on the market, you know, there may be five or ten families that are say, yeah, that's the one I want to buy, mm-hmm. uh, and it gets into a bidding war. And, you know, everybody's reveling in the fact that, you know, I got a lot more from my house than I thought. But that's, again, at the supply issue. And I, I can't understand why the federal government's jumping in and saying, well, we don't want blind bidding, which essentially means I put an offer in. And you put an offer in, but I don't know what your offer is and you don't know mine. So we can't counter it. We can't do anything. Uh, so, you know, th- that may be bad news for somebody who's a prospective buyer, but it's good news uh, for, for the person that's selling the house. It means I'm going to make a lot more money than than I had hoped for in many situations like that. Well, how do you find a balance in that situation, though? So, so it's fair to both
1: sides, Tim. Yeah, you set that up um, very well, uh, Bill. You're right. It's essential to find the, the proper balance between respecting um, privacy and home ownership, and also having you know more transparency in the system. And you know, a complete ban on the traditional offer process um, that has existed since Confederation uh, would be a, a radical move. And I'm not sure if there's any other jurisdiction, certainly in the Western world, um, that does that. Uh, your, your point is also a good one. This is really not about affordability, um, either. Um, I'll tell you why in a second, why well, I think the province is handling this much better than the federal government. But, but the reason that, uh, information is not shared among, among buyers, you don't know who else is bidding, you know, what bill put on the table and who that put on the table is because of protection of privacy. And this has been in Canadian law and Ontario law for some time. Next to health information, your personal finances are probably, you know, the most sensitive. And when you make an offer on a purchase, it's not just the price. It's also to sell your own home, how much you're prepared to put down in terms of a deposit, you know, when you could close. There's a lot of personal financial information, and not everybody wants to share that with perfect strangers across the table. And that's why the province has this rule that says that is kept confidential. Now, the Ford government did instead of blowing up that system and going to uh auctions uh, everywhere like they have in australia and uh, new zealand they said okay let's find a um, a reasonable balance here we'll give consumers an option if buyers and sellers both uh, want to share that information with each other they should be allowed to do so previously that was totally prohibited in the past so it is a new option that balances a transparency uh, while um, making sure it's an opt-in when you're giving out your personal financial information but to your other point there bill will that bring down prices know only more homes and more choice will do that
0: and i asked i because some people you know do characterize this i saw some of the comments uh, from uh, real estate boards right across the country in different provinces and they're suggesting that this is an unfair practice it's, it's not really uh unfair it, it, it's not unethical certainly uh you know there are going to be winners and losers but again you, to your point uh, as long as the short supply, this, this is going to happen. And, you know, if I'm a seller, as I said, you want to get maximum prices. But, you know, do we all have that information? You know, if if like, to use your example, if we go back to the, you, know, you and I are, are bidding on the same property, you may have conditions on yours. Uh, I may not. I may just say, yeah, I, I got the cash. I'm going to buy the house right now. Here's the check. Uh, you may need to sell your property. You may need a different closing date. I mean, all of these things are factors uh, in in you know, whether whether I, the seller is going to make a decision whether it's you know, going to be party A or party B that's going to buy the house. Uh, and that's, as, as you mentioned, in many people's eyes, that's, that's privileged information,
1: isn't it? It is very sensitive information, and, and that's why the government has historically protected that and then taken the route that if you want to voluntarily opt into sharing your personal information with strangers, you know, now you can do so. Um, two more important points to make here, too, is, you know, I, I totally... Um, Emphasize with with frustrated buyers. You know that Debbie and I have gone through this uh, ourselves on many occasions where you make your best offer, maybe even up it a little bit, and then you uh, walk away empty handed after you've had, you know, dreams the night before about making that home yours and where the crib's going to go and what you'll do with the garden or the backyard. Like the heartbreak buyers feel, uh, I've been through that. And that's when you need to focus on more affordable choices in the marketplace. But ultimately, Bill, you know, your home is your most precious asset. It is your most valuable asset. And secondly, it's also where you are most truly at home, your your place of your finest memories. It's where we raise our kids. And don't you think at the end of the day that the homeowner should be in the driver's seat on how they sell their home. That the government should not say you could only do it through an auction process, no other choices on the table. Let people choose what they're going to do when it comes to selling their home. And the second point I make on this is the notion that if the prices that everybody has in their offers are made publicly available will, will control the ultimate price has proven not to be the case. In countries where there are open auctions, like Australia and New Zealand, they've actually seen price accelerations higher than we've had here in Canada because auction fever develops. You want to beat that other person. Oh, just another 5000 here, another 10000 there. Ultimately, it's been demonstrated that it drives up prices. So this new model does help with transparency. It's a new consumer choice but it's not an affordability mechanism. Well,
0: and, you know, it's been a while. I mean, you know, we, we love the place that we're living here in Ancaster. It's great. And I know you you and Deborah are very happy down in Niagara. You've been there for years and years. But the reality here is in a situation like this, you know, you you want to feel comfortable with this. And, you know, I found this out, and you and I have talked about this in the past. You know, what's this house worth that I'm living in right now? It's worth whatever somebody is willing to pay for it. You know, you, the, the real estate agent can give you an estimate uh, based on what's sold in the neighborhood, et cetera, et cetera. We all know that process. Anybody who's gone through that. But if you say this is worth eight hundred thousand dollars, and somebody all comes along and says, "I'll give you a million five for it," what, mm-hmm. what am I going to do? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? I mean, it's it's what the market is willing to bear. And right now, the market's a little crazy, but that's just the the world in which we live, isn't it?
1: And, you know, there will always be up markets and, and, and down markets. Demand looks quite strong today. But when you're making decisions with the real estate market, you also have to think about, all right, what happens when things go the other way, which, you know, they eventually do in our, our economic system. And while, while it's important to focus on making sure that, you know, buyers have a chance to get the keys to a new home that they can afford, and that should be an overriding government policy. You need to be careful about saying that somebody's personal property, the home they currently live in, um, you know, should be controlled by the government and dictate on how they sell their home. It's not government property. It's not, you know, something that um, uh, is empty It's typically a homeowner who is thinking about her retirement, retirement dignity, or maybe getting a larger home because the kids need more room. And that's why we say give people a choice. Absolutely. More transparency. uh, That makes sense. When people opt in, but the government should not dictate to you, Bill, how you have to sell your home. Give consumers a choice,
0: or, or or for how much? I mean, you know, the worst case scenario is if some government comes along and says, "You know what? You can't sell a house for more than seven hundred thousand dollars." That's going to be you can't cap that. I mean, there has to be some sense of, of free market here, and, and you know, and if it goes a little crazy, you're absolutely right. I mean, we all go through peaks and valleys like this with everything, uh, and, and it will even out at points. I mean, I, I you know. <laughs> I remember a few years, I, I, you and I have talked about this in the past, the first house I bought, I remember the mortgage was 19%. Uh, and that was that was horrific times way back in the, in that era. Uh, but I also remember there's a period of time not too long after that where the houses essentially doubled in price from, from where they were. A- and that adjusted itself after a few years too. I mean, if you're trying to buy a house right now, it's pretty tough. I, I think we all acknowledge that. But you know, the old joke is, and i with all due respect to you, with your public office time, uh, you know the worst thing you can hear is a politician says, "Hey, I'm here to help," because <laughs> they don't usually think of the long term ramifications of this. And I don't think the government thought this thing out either.
1: Um, no, I mean, as I mentioned earlier on, there were some good initiatives here around consumer protection, professional standards, tougher discipline. If somebody takes advantage of a buyer or seller, all great. We've been calling that for some time. But Billy, make an excellent point. I do worry that governments, instead of addressing the supply issue, and taking on the NIMBY forces that say nothing in my backyard. It'll be easier to try to, you know, dictate how you sell your home. You mentioned caps. There's been a lot of talk about new taxes to try to drive down home values and take away people's retirement savings. You know, that's all wrongheaded and dangerous. We put ideas on the table. You know, I've talked about them intensifying, you know, in urban areas along transit uh, outside of, urban boundaries for land that's not environmentally sensitive. You can convert access commercial government properties to housing. There are a lot of opportunities there. It just takes courage of government to get that job done. And then the keys can get closer to hand for hardworking Canadians and create that next generation of homeowners
0: and just i know we're out of time here but just to finish off just so people are, are aware uh, as we mentioned off the top the federal government doesn't really have jurisdiction over this what they said in the in their budget announcement was they're going to work with the provinces to see if they can find a more fair system but uh, as you mentioned tim our the ontario government's already weighed in on this and said now, now we're not going down that road so just i want to lay people's concerns about that it's not going to be happening in ontario anytime soon always a pleasure tim to get your perspective on this thanks so much for this we really appreciate the time today
1: Thanks, Bill. Thank you for your time. Thanks for your work, and we'll look forward to seeing you soon.
0: You betcha. Tim Hudak, uh, the uh, CEO, of course, of the Ontario Real Estate Association.
1: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
0: The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.